Katie, I understand you have something you would like to share with the class. You're going to make me do it, aren't you? Yeah. This is a pro accountability podcast. Always has been, always will be. Go ahead. Okay. So our free listeners might have noticed that this past Monday, a week ago today, if you're listening on the free feed, there was not, as usual, an episode of Blocked and Reported. And this was not because uh, of the holiday. There Apparently, it was a holiday. It was not because we were celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. It was also not because... Oh, definitely <laughs> definitely not. I mean, we've been clear how we feel about that guy in this podcast. Yeah. This is an anti-MLK Jr. podcast. Uh, we are not colorblind on this show. Anyway, um, so what happened is that we have to go through sort of a convoluted process to get the free episode in your feeds. And what happened is that Jesse forgot to send it to the guy who usually posts it. That's not what happened at all. <laughs> that's, you said I, that that's what... I, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Look, look. I'm right. pretty sure. Okay, what are... I was ready to actually take accountability for my own wrongdoing this week, and then you just ruined the whole thing. This was going to be a mutual accountability jerk-off sesh. Look, we're just going to have to agree to disagree here. The people can choose for themselves. What do you think is more likely? That I, a responsible home... I'm a homeowner, Jesse. I own two homes. I have 15 cars... I have a dog. I keep a dog alive. I'm married. That I would forget to send the episode or that you, a gamer, would forget to send the episode. You're wearing cargo shorts right now. Are you not? And it's snowing. All homeowners are responsible. It's a very brave take in these United States. <laughs> that is brave. God, wait till I come out as a landlord. Um, I'm not a landlord. I'm not a landlord before. No, no, nobody's read that rumor. I'm not a landlord. We should pull the curtain back a little bit. What happens is you send your stuff to Substack for them to post it. They choose whether or not it's Nazi content. Yes. If it's Nazi content, it gets to jump to the to the, right. the front of the queue. If it's anti-racist content like we are, they sort of they don't exactly prioritize that as as you know. Um, so that. Do you think what happened is that the Nazis at Substack were uh, they were upset with you about about the Nazi erasure. You, I think you, what you literally said was Substack doesn't have a Nazi problem. I think the Nazis at Substack got a little pissed. Wait, let me pull up this email from Chris Best. Jesse, what are you talking about? We are a Nazi publication. Swastika, swastika, swastika emojis. Um, yeah, that's pretty uh, damning stuff. Hitler, yeah, I got the same one. First of all, if you're not a paid subscriber, fuck you. We don't I, don't, I don't know how to phrase. Yeah, we don't value you as a human. There's no, there's, that's the only honest way to describe our relationship to you. So you, you take what you'll get and you'll like it. Yeah. And in this case, what you got was absolutely nothing because we forgot <laughs> to send you the fucking episode. Um, yeah, we had that happened. You screwed up and then I screwed up because there were some audio snafus in the last one, but you should still. Yeah. So apologies to the actual paid listeners who uh, got treated to a premium episode this week with Jesse sounding even more like Jordan Peterson than usual. What did it sound like? It sounded like if you if you drowned a cat and you like held it underwater. That's what my voice sounded like. That's all I got. That wasn't very good. So that's that's the sort of uh, quality you can expect from our paid episodes. <laughs> right. By the way, become a paid subscriber. <laughs> it usually goes it usually goes much smoother than this. Katie, what is the name of this increasingly dysfunctional podcast? This is Blocked and Reported and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single, and today we've got um, a few sort of like bite-sized appetizery mm-hmm. things that we want to discuss before the main event, which involves uh, a photo of a naked guy, more or less. Is that what you got from the notes that I sent you? Is there the photo of the naked guy? Well, it, it jumped out at me for sure. I, I really fixated on that. It's, it's more than just a naked guy. We're going to be talking to you about a naked blood man. A naked blood man? Yes, it'll make sense later. Okay, first you not want not a blood boy, a blood, a blood man. man. He had his blood mitzvah, so he became a blood man. <laughs> uh, you wanted to. You said you got some emails about a- aphantasia, which is a condition 
you have self-diagnosed as having. You identify yes. as aphantasic, which means you cannot picture anything and you're a very mean bully all the time. Yes, I lack the ability to visualize. This is self-diagnosed. I did take an online quiz. Uh, I also took the online quiz for hypochondria. I also got top marks in that. Hey, oh, that's very, like, I don't think of you as doing, like, old-school Borscht Belt-style <laughs> comedy. That was pretty good. That was not a joke. Maybe that's why. Um, and, uh, yeah, but so what this means is that I, I lack the ability to visualize. And I got a few emails about this. Uh, one in particular that I wanted to respond to. So the listener writes, for me, memories are visualizing the past, and when I visualize things, I am just drawing on a past memory. I can replace scenes in my life in fairly high fidelity, fuck you, I'm jealous, including what they look like, but also like the sound and feeling and sometimes the smell and taste as well. That's how my memory works. Katie, how do you remember things? What are your memories like? I've been struggling with how to articulate this, and as an example of how hard this is to articulate, so Janet and I were on our way to Lowe's today. We had a big shopping list, and she had forgotten it. And, but she remembered, she visualized what the list looked like when she wrote it out. And I was, that's course, crazy. She's a hyper. Why does she need a, why? Yeah, I know. But why? Okay. So she doesn't need a list. Well, I mean, or she can write it once and then leave. Yeah. It. She has a, a good memory. I mean, sometimes she does visualize things that didn't happen, but in this case, she, I think she got everything on the list, right? Uh, she should get that. She should get that checked out. Or is that like a subtle, <laughs> a subtle dig at her? Let's move on. And, uh, so I was asking her like, when you visualize it, do you actually see the image of the thing or is it like an invisible image? And she looked at me like I was fucking crazy because what the hell is an invisible image? But I Good think question. that is the best way to explain my memories is that they are invisible images or sort of like feelings, but very specific ones. Like I can remember, Jesse, the first time that we met, mm -hmm. it was at a diner in New York. And I was very surprised that you were unexpectedly tall because you sound like such a short woman. A short woman. And yeah. that you were, yeah. And that you were wearing a neon green mesh tank top. And an ammo belt. Don't forget the ammo belt. I, it was summer, but that was surprising. And so when I think back on it, like I know you were in a mesh tank top, but I can't visualize you in the mesh tank top. I, I'm not good at describing this. It's very hard to explain. I can see an invisible image of you in the mesh tank top. An anyway. invisible image of Jesse yeah. Single in a mesh tank top and an ammo belt. Neon green. Yes. This is good uh, fodder for fan art if anyone wants to send that in. <laughs> okay. So I reached out to a fellow afantastic. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. Afantastic. Afantasic. Afantasic. Sophie Scott. Uh, she happens to be a very accomplished neuroscientist, also a, a listener of this show. Eh, yeah. <laughs> I think she, I think she's a mediocre neuroscientist personally, but we don't need to bring that in. She's won those British awards that are things like the Order of the Order of the... The Royal Order of the Queen's Fox Hunting Guard or whatever. Yeah. Right. It sounds like a Star Wars title. <laughs> anyway, so she's apparently a big deal. And I asked her to describe what the experience of recall is like for her. And she said, my experience of autobiographical memories is feelings and words. Also, even if I can't name them, smells and taste and spatial detail, exactly where things were. And if there's anything visual, it's just a sense of colors. My experience of recall feels quite detailed, but I don't recall a scene. And I, I guess that's, I'll just go with what she says. Um, it's just really hard to articulate. I think hearing you talk about it more, I thought we had like similar experiences here, but like I... I might just be confused about what it means to be able to visualize something in your mind. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I can I can visualize my childhood kitchen. I basically can. I just don't see a physical image, but I don't think anyone really means it is very no, hard to explain even what it means I to like. I think that people do you mean think that. They do? Yeah, it's literal. It's literal. I don't. They can't. I mean if if because then if you ask them some detail about it, they'd have to fill it in. It doesn't it's not like when you look at it okay. I mean, this is getting too abstract, but 
And maybe they are actually visualizing. Okay, people in the comments, let us know. When you say that you can visualize something, is it like a literal seeing of the thing? Because like when I talk to Jana about that, she says it's literal. She says that she can literally recall like scenes of her life like it's a movie. Like she's actually seeing it in her brain. Not with her eyes, but with her mind. We're, this podcast is trending in a very stoned dorm room freshman. <laughs> Episode 389, what if my blue is your red? That's deep, Jesse. Um. The okay, is that all on Aphantasia? Yeah, uh, stay tuned for the five thousand word essay that I can't get anybody to publish. <laughs> Maybe I'll put it in the put it in the newsletter. Um, definitely check out Sophie Scott, even though she is at best a mediocre neuroscientist. You also wanted to discuss polyamory, which is in, which is unfortunately in the news. Yes. <laughs> just just when you think this situation in Gaza can't get worse, and it's yeah, muscled right. out by an even worse subject. <laughs> so yes, as you may have noticed. Straight people have recently discovered polyamory. They have brought it out of the bathhouse and into the brownstone. They are co-opting it. They are gentrifying it. They are making it their own. And it is in the news. A big picture, I think we can blame Dan Savage for this. He gave straight people the idea that a lot it could of stuff. Be, yes. Um, the, the idea that they could be in a relationship and still get sexual satisfaction outside of that relationship. I mean, he's not the only one responsible for this, but he was a big part of popularizing this concept. I mean, I have no ethical qualms with polyamory, but the problem with polyamory is the people, poly people are the Tesla drivers of the sexual world. They will not shut the fuck up about why their way of being is superior to those of us who drive Toyotas and don't trade chlamydia with our friends. I wouldn't even say they sometimes they're smugly superior about it. It's just they're they're fascinated by their own sexual decisions and like Mm -hmm. to share them in a way uh a lot of us normal people wouldn't like we have we feel absolutely I do completely totally. ashamed about anything involving sex and that's much yes. more healthy. I don't share no. with anybody. My body's weird. The things that come out of it are disgusting. And I don't I don't want anyone to know about that. Yeah. So the problem with polyamory <laughs> is not polyamory itself, it's poly people. Anyway, you can say that about a lot of things. Like true. Like que- okay, increasingly podcasting. queer people are podcasting versus podcasters. Queerness, which is fine, queer versus people. married blonde terrible. straight women saying they're queer who Horrible. are terrible. Yeah, it's you got to separate the concept from the people who practice the concept. Yes, Ju- Judaism Jews, is fine. fine. <laughs> Many individual Jews are insufferable. Okay, so all of that aside, polyamory really is seemingly everywhere this week i've heard it on npr it was on the view it was in the wall street journal it's on the cover of new york magazine and in the pages of new york times it's the subject of every other culture podcast including this one it's all over twitter and i just wanted to clear up some confusion about why this might be so part of it is just that polyamory is very in right now but why the push this week that's the question so matt walsh a man whose claim to fame is knowing what a woman is he tweeted this the memo has gone out Three major media publications in the last week have published articles pushing polyamory. He says polyamory in scare quotes. This is the next frontier in the war on the nuclear family, as some of us predicted 10 years ago. So he makes it sound like the reason polyamory is everywhere right now is because of some kind of conspiracy to destroy the nuclear family, a conspiracy that naturally he's been hip to for the past decade. But Matt doesn't Katie, see- just because yes. you yourself don't get the memo doesn't mean <laughs> yes. it wasn't a memo. Matt doesn't seem to understand how publishing works, which is weird because he works in the media and he's written books. The reason polyamory is everywhere this week is because there's a new book out. It's called More, A Memoir of an Open Marriage. It came out on January 16th. It's by a, a, a woman named Molly Roden Winter. And yes, it's about polyamory. 
the book sounds terrible to me, but mostly because there's a scene in which she accidentally texts her lover that he's not as good in the sack as her husband while she's in bed with him. Mm -hmm. I would honestly, like, I'm just even saying that I'm dying of embarrassment. I would rather read Jude Doyle's newsletter than subject myself to that level of secondhand cringe. Regardless, the book has a big, big publisher, Doubleday, and Molly's publicist deserves an award. They have done a remarkable job of, mar of marketing this book. It's getting a ton of attention. It's already a bestseller. Now, again, Molly didn't make polyamory mainstream. Dan Savage did that. And for that, I will never forgive him. But her book is tapping into the zeitgeist and the publication of the book gives all of these outlets an excuse to write about it or talk about it or whatever. In the media industry, this is called a peg, which is basically a current event or a publication or some kind of story that is used as a hook for a feature or a column or a podcast or whatever. So pegs can be like National Hot Dog Day or the premiere of the Barbie movie or Fashion Week or Election Day or sticking something in your boyfriend's butt, whatever. Day. It's just a timely <laughs> day. <laughs> National Pegging Day. <laughs> It's just a timely excuse to talk about something, and that is why you can't turn on talk radio or a podcast without hearing people debate the merits of polyamory this week. It's because there's a book about out about it. The book is the peg. And we're all getting pegged right now, vigorously. Yes, right now. And this is less evidence of a conspiracy than just groupthink and how the media works. And now, do poly people want to destroy the nuclear family? No, they don't. They want to expand it so they can get free babysitting from their husbands, lovers, teenage kids. So Matt Walsh, you might know what a woman is, but you were wrong about this. That would be such a good sentence to utter someday. My wife's boyfriend is watching yes. the kids. Jesse, would you ever be Polly? Uh, fully Polly? No. This is not an invitation. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, with you guys? Uh, um, <laughs> no, I actually, I mean, this is this might be a conversation for another day. I think on a paywall podcast, it's interesting on a paywall podcast. Oh yeah, I'll just say that. I'll th I'll say it's interesting how. I think there's actually interesting questions here. It doesn't like the most visibly polyamorous people are pretty insufferable and the people who talk about it endlessly, but there are interesting questions about why we, the model where totally. one person is going to provide all your needs forever. Is mm -hmm. that realistic? Is that overly sentimental? Um, also shouldn't, aging gross fat men be able to sleep with younger <laughs> women whenever they want are they rich because if they're rich the answer is yes <laughs> should it should it there be an island we can fly to for example okay um one other thing i want to mention about this was rob henderson uh, a very smart up-and-coming writer who i believe coined the idea of uh, luxury beliefs so this is when rich people are like abolish the police because they can afford to say abolish the police. They don't really deal with crime or have much experience with it. Really like Rob. He has a memoir co coming out called, let me actually just get the name. Um, oh, you know what? My microphone is sitting on it right now. Oh. <laughs> it's called Troubled. What's it called? Troubled. He has a memoir coming out. It's called Troubled. His whole thing is he did not grow up in wealthy circumstances and he's interested in the sort of sociology and anthropology of class and, and how, you know, liberal institutions run by rich people work. I'm really looking forward to reading his book. I just got it. Um, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. He did a Substack article about how he could not find any bookstore to host him. And I'm actually, I'm working with him and his publicist and hopefully we can get a New York event together. It's looking good. It's not final yet. He should have done a chapter on polyamory. Well, interesting. You should say you say that because he. I found out about the polyamory book. I'm not. I wouldn't have been hip enough to learn about it otherwise. But in this very cathartic post he wrote, he said, "Maybe if I were a polyamorous upper middle class author with 94 followers and wrote a memoir of having an open marriage, I would have better luck." Right background check. Right boxes check. 
first of all, he is adopting some upper middle class ideals by making fun of someone for not having enough Twitter followers. So that's good. He's making progress. But it is true. This is this woman was unknown, but absolutely enmeshed in these sorts of social networks where polyamory is in right now. And this is just another mm-hmm. version of like there was a time when yeah, what's the book called? In Defense of Looting came out and books about abolishing the police came out because that's what rich, mostly white people cared about then. Now it's polyamory. Next week, what will it be? Well, let's make a prediction. We'll be like. Uh, cats should your cats be polyamorous um and i I mean zoophilia probably (laughs) which is great because we already have a podcast episode on it exactly and and i think rob's resentment stems from the fact that he publishers and bookstores claim to care about someone's platform rob has a much bigger platform than that than this woman but he's not from the right background to write that kind of book um and he says quote unquote problematic things so uh, i hope i can do an event with him and i I think it's a fair point i do think it's more about what Rob says than who he is, because if he were, if it were, if his narrative were about, I mean, he's, he's, he's BIPOC. I don't know if Asians count this week, but still better than being white. If Rob's, I don't know. I just, I guess what I'm saying is I think that in this case, it's less about his identity. The fact that he, you know, was adopted, his narrative could sell really well in New York magazine on NPR, but, if he had a different message. But he's being critical of the ethos of that exact demographic. Yeah. Okay. So let me just read this one part. I'm curious what the thought process was here for all these bookstores, the bookstores that won't let him host an event. Okay. Who is this author? He's a Latino Asian guy raised in foster homes in LA who is later raised by two gay women and joins the US Air Force and gets degrees from Yale and Cambridge. He shares lessons he's learned about family, responsibility, status, anxiety, and upward social mobility. He has a large online following and 50,000 newsletter subscribers. Um, did you say foster homes? No, thanks. And that stuff about family and responsibility? Ew, hard pass. I'm actually with you, Katie. If he was from a foster home and clawed his way up and came out the other side and his message was systemic racism is everywhere and the culture tried to stifle him, but he overcame it. But it's it's less... But I do think if you're from a wealthy background, you're more likely to imbue, um, well, imbibe you the, the... You have the connections. Yeah, and you're more likely to develop the quote-unquote right beliefs... That will allow you to publish a book about white supremacy or polyamory or whatever. You know, I was going to say, maybe the problem is that Rob, maybe he has like a dinky publisher and maybe they don't have the juice to get his book, to get him book readings. But I just looked up his publisher and it's an imprint of Simon & Schuster. So that seems unlikely. They published Jordan Belford. The wolf, that's the wolf of Wall Street, the wolf of investing, (laughs) making it so by Patrick Stewart. Engage. All right, so probably Um, not them. So probably what he needs to do is really just announce that he's polyamorous. Good-looking guy, too. I think what he needs to do is pull himself up by the bootstraps. Yeah, totally. Because this is an individual problem. Um, Okay, Katie, before we finally get to the main event, which, again, just involves a photo of a naked man we're going to comment on, can I make one last complaint about that Atlantic article we discussed last week? What uh, What are you talking about? I've blocked this out. Oh, my God. Uh, so this was the Atlantic article about Substack having a Nazi problem. Oh, yeah. As we definitively concluded, and as everyone has since agreed with us, there's no Nazi problem. Right. There's no such thing as the Nazis, and they never did anything bad. And if they did... They killed six know, million Substacks. Jesus. <laughs> All right, fine. It was 600,000. Oh, my God. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Katie, let's... Just listen to the episode. Episode two. <laughs> you, like, feel the coffee wearing off at the worst time. Listen to the episode if you're not up to date on this controversy. I focused on the worst misleading stuff Jonathan M. Katz did in this article. There's this other part that pissed me off in this more subtle journalism nerd way, and I just want to complain about it. Katie, will you just let me talk for once? Fine. 
This had to do with Daryl Cooper of the Martyr Made podcast, which is now hosted on Substack. Are you are you familiar with that? I can't remember how much he's come up before. No, I've never heard of this. Cooper is this really interesting, vexing figure who I think deserves a magazine profile. Um, he's an exceptionally talented history podcaster. I'm not familiar with the full range of his output, but I, I've listened to a fair amount of Martyr Made. That's his history podcast. He did these two miniseries, uh, God Socialist, The Rise and Fall of People's Temple. That centered on Jim Jones, the individuals drawn to his cult, the broader tumult of that era. And then there's Fear and Loathing in the New Jerusalem, which is like a comprehensive account of the origins of Zionism and the founding of Israel. These podcasts blew my mind. They were so good. Unfortunately, he's also turned into a little bit of a conspiracy theorist weirdo on Twitter. Do you know other people like that who do like really good work, but then you see their Twitter persona and you're like, I don't know how to feel about that? <laughs> you would be, you would fall into that category for sure. I'd probably fall into that category. Yeah. Okay, so that's enough background for those unfamiliar with Cooper. I can say check out Martyr Made Podcast. Here's what Jonathan M. Katz says about Daryl Cooper in the context of complaining about who Hamish McKenzie, the Nazi Substack co-founder, has chosen to promote. In McKenzie's recent post about quote-unquote leaning into politics, the Substack co-founder enthusiastically and prominently recommended a lesser-known Substacker, Daryl Cooper, as among the up-and-comers in political writing. Cooper's podcast featured a complimentary interview with the white nationalist magazine editor Greg Johnson, dot, dot, dot. Cooper has also used his personal Twitter account to claim that, quote, FDR chose the wrong side in World War II. <laughs> And he notes that those uh, those tweets and pod, the tweet and podcast were deleted. So, first of all, Katz had so little evidence about Nazis. He's like now throwing in a bunch of other complaints, including about who McKenzie promoted. Anyway, here's the um, full contact context from McKenzie's post, which Katz doesn't link to or describe in much detail. Actually, Katie, do you want to just read this short bit? Some of the best political writing is already happening on Substack, from writers more and less known, from big names like Matt Taibbi and Robert Reich, to up-and-comers like N.S. Lyons and Margaret Maid. Millions of readers trust writers and publications like Heather Cox Richardson, Dan Pfeiffer, The Free Press, Dan Rather, Simon Rosenberg, Ann Coulter, Neil Katyal, The Bulwark, Aaron, Re Aaron Reed, come on, <laughs> Chris Rufo, Ruth Benagia, Mike Cernovich, Michael Moore, Brian Kaplan, Joyce Vance, Nate Silver, Matt Iglesias, Josh Bear, The Fifth Column, and Andrew Sullivan, along with a myriad of others. Where are we in this list to make sense of what's going on? Well, it's political substackers, uh, to be fair. So... You would not have known from reading Jonathan M. Katz's article that Hamish McKenzie praised everybody in this, from left-wing people like Michael Moore, um, left-wing conspiracy theorists like Aaron Reed, to right-wing conspiracy theorists like Michael Cernovich. Isn't that just like a little bit dishonest to pretend that he just praise this one guy without giving anyone the context they need to, to see what kind of post that was? I mean, Katz has proven himself to be a master cherry picker. I'm surprised, though, that he didn't also mention Ann Coulter, Chris Rufo, Michael, uh, Mike Cernovich. Oh, except he did. He oh. At the time, he left a, an angry comment about Coulter uh, and I think Cernovich. So he's like just had a bug up his ass about all this stuff. It's not about Nazis. It's just about him wanting to exert control over like who Hamish McKenzie um, likes. Anyway, there's that. And then this thing about... Um, Daryl Cooper, martyr maid, having interviewed Greg no Johnson, a white nationalist. Greg Johnson is a white nationalist, but uh, Daryl Cooper, martyr maid, has explained exactly why he interviewed a white nationalist. Here's the full context from an AMA he did in 2022. Quote, it was 2016 and people were talking about the alt-right and BLM. Terrorists were driving buses over crowds of people, etc. And so I had the idea to interview four people considered extremist identitarians. A white nationalist, that's great. Wait, terrorists were driving buses over crowds of people? I don't remember that. We'll have to look that up later. 
I had the, this is important though. This is so important. I had the idea to interview four people considered extremist identitarians, a white nationalist, a black nationalist who runs a small organization, a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood in the UK, and a very serious religious Zionist settler in the West Bank. Katie, is it honest to tell readers that Daryl Cooper interviewed a white nationalist without explaining that this was part of a planned series interviewing extremist identitarians of all stripe? I mean, it is literally true that he interviewed a white nationalist, but he left out important context here. And it's interesting to me that uh, that Katz doesn't get, is not complaining about the black, na- the black nationalist or the guy the, the the Muslim Brotherhood or even the Zionist. Yeah, he really. He, that dude really cherry picks. It's insane. Now, those three other interviews didn't end up happening. It was a planned series that uh, we'll include a link. Uh, Daryl Cooper explains. I just, this like seems like a little nitpicky thing, but it's not. You just have to give readers the context they need to like make decisions for themselves. Okay, but uh, what about. FDR choosing the wrong side. What's that about? That sounds pretty bad. I don't know. I don't know. I I emailed him for comment. I also I could he didn't respond to the request for comment. I also tried to pull up that quote. All I could find was an old archived log of various people's tweets. I couldn't even find the original tweet. Um he's not Derek Cooper's not a Nazi. Uh you can see the stuff he said. He described anti-Semitism in Nazi era Germany as an autoimmune disorder where Europe was like sort of attacking himself. He's not a Nazi. He's obviously not a Nazi. Anyone who's listened to him knows he's not a Nazi. So I don't know where that quote's from, but it's I would suspect it's out of context or something. All right. Well, more broadly, how is the reaction to your both your post on this? You wrote two posts for your your shitty Nazi Substack about how there's no Nazis on Substack, accepting yourself. Uh, and we also talked about on the show, did uh, did either, did so that's three pieces of content. I'm sure you also did a million tweets. Did this, do you sense that this had any impact into changing the narrative that Substack has a Nazi problem? Uh, no, I think as usually happens, people retreated to their respective corners. Like I, the, the yeah. you know, by the standards of Substack, my post got a fair amount of pickup. I got a very intelligent response from Michael Hobbs, which is how you know you've made it big. As always, as always, his his argument, as always, he's been pretty explicit about this, is it doesn't really matter if an individual claim is true as long as the broader claim is true. So he pointed out, even though this this entire most damning anecdote from Jonathan M. Katz's story is made up, that doesn't matter because reasons, you know, because reasons yeah so uh yeah the, he reads the vibes he reads the vibes and Substack has nazi vibes which is interesting that he's on Substack. do you do you think he's a nazi i you know what it's impossible to know whether michael hobbs is a nazi or not here's what i will say you know who lived in germany michael hobbs no nazis you know who else lives in germany michael hobbs <laughs> yeah that's very, very very good exchange right there uh yeah so whether or not michael hobbs is a nazi if i were to adopt michael hobbs standards of evidence and reasoning i'd say Probably 50-50, maybe 60-40. Well, more people seem to be leaving Substack. Um, I'm very glad that we have cultivated an audience that is not demanding that we leave the platform. Is it idiots? <laughs> Most of them. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. Some of them are yeah, not idiots. Yeah, well, Who else is leaving? Well, according to Today in Tabs, a, a newsletter that I hate read and don't recommend, <laughs> uh, Jonathan Katz left. Casey Newton left, Ryan Broderick. No, not Brian Rod- Broderick, my boy. Yeah, the Substack's best plagiarist. Hunter Harris. And liar. Don't, don't forget liar. Don't forget liar. liar. David Ferrier. Oh, and uh, apparently uh, Anne Helen Peterson. She is apparently, quote, working hard to create change from the inside. 
And, um, oh, and he also says, quote, Slug Boy Freddy and former journalist Jesse Single are big mad for reasons they aren't competent enough to express clearly using their words. I would not say that you or Freddy ever have trouble expressing yourself with words. Okay, can I just talk a little more shit because we're in a gossipy mode? Fine, go for it. Yeah, sure. Is it Anne Helen Peterson or Anne Helene Peterson? I think it's Helen. She's much more, she's like a bigger name than me. She's been very successful in Substack. She one time had someone on who just was like, and you know what else TERFs are? White supremacists. And <laughs> Anne Helen Peterson, who's a public intellectual, did not, there was no follow-up question. It was just yeah. sort of, uh, yep, obvious. Like, and again, even if you dislike TERFs, shouldn't you, like, what, where, how? You, you got to look at the polling about how black people, moderate black people feel about things like, like <laughs> yeah, trans sucked. women in bathrooms and sports. TERFs are a real multicultural group, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, me and Freddie are big mad. All right, Katie, should we do an ad for the free listeners and then housekeeping and then get to the naked man story? Let's do it. Katie, have you ever browsed in incognito mode? Are you following me? No, no. Who told you that? Anyway, incognito mode is probably not as incognito as you think. And why would it be? Incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product. And Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. Not me, Katie. Google. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against a company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense? Incognito does not mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online and avoid entities like Google and possibly me? You use ExpressVPN, like I do. Turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. It's terrifying. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN users. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Katie, how cute would that be if we had the same IP address? Disgusting. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. And I actually used it this summer on a smart TV, no lie. All you have to do- What were you doing? I was in Germany. I want to watch Netflix. Mm. Lay off me, lay off mm. me. It wasn't any mm. weird German stuff. It was just normal American sure. Netflix from Germany. I believe All that. you have mm -hmm. to do- is tap one button for instant protection on phone, laptop, or smart TV. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com reported and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash reported. Go to expressvpn.com slash reported to learn more and possibly have the same IP address as me and Katie. We don't have the same IP address. I'd like to think we do. Housekeeping. Katie, do it. I've been talking. No. A lot. Oh, no, you're about to talk a lot. I'll do it. We're a podcast, blockreport.org. Uh, the best way to support us is to become a paying subscriber for $5 a month and up. You get three extra episodes a month, including one we just published on the James Bennett Manifesto with impeccable audio quality. Another one coming next week on, um, what's his name? Hassan Piker. And pirate Yemeni pirate TikTok influencer discourse is going to be a great episode. You will only get a preview of it if you're on the free feed. Can't wait for that. Second best way to support us is to rate and review us on um, Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever it's called. What's the third way? 
best way to support us. You could buy some merch if you feel like it. Barpodmerch.com. I mean, I can't like in good conscience recommend it because we might or might not have a merch store. Did our merch store suddenly become operated by a company with a different name run by a different woman? Yes. Was there a reasonable explanation? Also, yes. No. Yes. Have we gotten paid for it at all? No. We we haven't. What do you mean have we gotten paid for it at all? No. We have not gotten paid for it. I sometimes wonder whether we should not be having conversations like this. <laughs> running a business. Well, running a business, yes. we definitely should be doing. Should we be talking about the ins and outs of our merch issues on the podcast instead of having private? Maybe we should like do... Just buy a hoodie. Just buy a hoodie. Um, fifth best way to support us is like just give Katie a kiss on the cheek when you see her in public. Don't do that. Don't need to say anything. She'll know, she'll know why you're doing it. Did you ever figure out that contest that you promised? Yeah, I'm waiting to hear back from Substack, from actually a very hardworking guy who does stuff for us at Substack um, about a list. He's a Nazi. He's a Nazi. A brown, one of those brown Nazis. Nazis are really hard workers. Say what you will of the Nazis. They're very hard workers. Always on time. I'm very efficient. Um, yeah, the contest is happening. I'm just waiting for the list of names, and then I can send out the form and people can enter, and then I'm going to go get murdered in a field. Okay, Katie, Naked Man. All right, Jesse, does the name Brian Johnson mean anything to you? So off the top of my head, I'd say Brian Johnson. I'm picturing like a 1990s NFL linebacker before the league cracked down on steroids who got busted for getting in a fight at a Tampa Bay strip club. Do I have that right? Close. Okay, he's the guy... <laughs> attempting to Benjamin Button himself to eternal youth. I'm sure you've seen him on Twitter. He's also an ex-Mormon tech entrepreneur with a net worth of several hundred million dollars. And he came from a modest background. He made his money founding Braintree, which was a mobile payment thing. It was acquired by PayPal for $800 million. And of that $800 million, he got almost half. He had by that point, I think, been pushed out of the company, but still he got paid out. Uh, and then he went on to found Kernel, a company focused on brain machine interfaces so he sells these helmets that are supposed to read your brain waves or something i'm not totally sure Katie, you can't expect to, like to just go on without me googling kernel brain helmet oh my god yeah how's it look yeah. very creepy there's this smiling guy with what looks like a padded helmet on yeah so i'm not sure what they do apparently they cost like i read both fifty thousand and ninety thousand dollars i'm not sure what's true let's say it's 75 and they've raised a ton of funding, but apparently they've sold very few of them, maybe because, yes, they look like something evil Knievel would wear to the dentist. They're very strange looking. None of that is what, what has made him omnipresent in the news and on social media. And we likely never would have heard of him if not for his other project, Blueprint, which is, is his attempt to never die. That's his tagline. Sorry, yes. sorry. Come again? Come again? Never die? He's please his latest entrepreneurship effort is for him brian johnson to never die well he doesn't want anybody to have to die but he's like the guinea pig so he's been advertising this in this way that's like perfect media fodder he's very into self-promotion and that gets us to the image of the naked man you saw while scrolling through our notes uh, he tweeted this jesse please describe it is a man holding a um <laughs> it's probably a sign of my fitness habits i don't know what they're called yes. it's a kettle kettlebell kettlebell He's a, a very fit middle-aged man um, with a enviable physique. The background looks like a mossy Pacific Northwest field. Like I can imagine Moose fighting a bear in that field. Yeah, he's just naked and there's a uh, not very large kettlebell covering his penis. Right. As, uh, and, and, and the tweet says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but hate will only feed me. And then? JK on sticks and stones, my wolverine bones are top... 0.02% of 30-year-olds. Wait, he's only 30? 
No, he is not only 30. Oh, he's saying top point. Okay, sorry, continue. Yeah. So his whole thing is about reversing age. He's actually 46. Uh, Specifically, he wants to reverse his own age. So he's taken all of these pretty wild and unorthodox steps to lower his aging rate. Like, for instance, he underwent a series of plasma transfusions with his son and his father. So he, as a 40-something, got his 17-year-old son's plasma, so his blood boy. And then his 70-year-old dad got his 46-year-old plasma, and that is uh, what a daisy chain is. Okay, finally we've settled that. The point of this was the slow age recl- Hey, Jana. Fucking woman painting my house for free. She's making noise. She, you know, did I tell you she got a job? Oh, doing as what? As a construction worker. Her contractor what? hired her for her what? to be on the crew. Yeah. What does that pay versus being a nurse? It, it does not pay well, but it is under the table. She starts next week. Nice. Uh, all right, I'm going to leave that in. Anyway, if you guys hear some painting, that's Janet practicing for her new job. Uh, anyway, the point of this was to slow age-related cognitive decline. He's not the first person to to milk someone's blood, I don't think, but apparently it didn't work, at least for him, because he discontinued this particular therapy after six months. But before you fire your own blood boy, Jesse, he did later say that these transfusions reduced his dad's speed of aging by 25 years, so there might be some promise there. What What is... What does that mean to reduce his speed of aging by 25 years? There are all of these like biological markers within your, I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand it. So that means for every one year his dad ages, he ages 1 25th of a year. So like half a month. It's like his his body turned into the, the I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand it. It's something to do with epigenetics, a, a concept that I thought was debunked. I don't understand this stuff. Okay. The point is he's his, his, he is trying to live to be 200 years old okay i mean aren't, aren't we all in a sense and and milking his son for blood is not the wackiest thing that he did milking his son is just a blood. real like freezing i moment. said for blood <laughs> uh he also at one point was shocking his penis three times a week as part of his wiener rejuvenation plan technical term amateur uh, at another point he was drinking three ounces of wine every morning although he stopped that because apparently there's too many calories sorry that's the why did you throw that in there that's like the least three ounces of wine is nothing it's like start your day with three ounces of wine i find that very bizarre Eh, i guess so how much is a glass of wine Uh, i don't know six ounces no it's gotta be more uh he's also done some unproven gene therapies which might explain why his skin glows in the dark so basically he throws a bunch of shit at the wall measures the outcomes and discards what doesn't work and he's very public about this so he posts a ton he's got a youtube channel and you can see every detail of like he posted a video about his morning routine It consists of him waking up naturally between 4.30 and 6.30. Then he measures his inner ear temperature. Then he stands in front of a a UV light for a few minutes to set his circadian rhythm. Then he takes his iron and his vitamin C. Then he weighs himself. He calculates his BMI, his muscle mass, his bone density. Sometimes he does an MRI in the morning. Then he does Sometimes he milks his son, but he censors that. And sometimes his dad milks him. Then he does five (laughs) minutes of blue light therapy. And that's just before he leaves the bedroom the whole thing you can watch the whole thing if you give a shit about it uh he works out a lot yeah he works out a ton he takes between 50 and 100 different pills a day he has a very strict dietary routine uh and oh he also as part of his workouts he apparently does some sort of like japanese shake weight thing that's the equivalent of twenty thousand sit-ups in 30 minutes what that's not a thing all right i want it to be 
I wanted to be. And so the goal is to stay young, you know, and he spends $2 million annually on this project. And that includes the team he employs to work with them. And I should say, it does seem to be working. I mean, I don't know if he's actually going to live to be 100. I would guess not. That is his current goal. But before he started this self-improvement kick, he was unhappy, unhealthy, overweight, and he seems to be very much not that anymore. So he says that he's decreased his epigenetic age by at least five years, which honestly, I just don't think it sounds like that much. Like I could do that with Botox. And his body does look amazing. Although the funny thing is like, he doesn't really look young. Like you said, he looked like a middle-aged man and he does. He looks like a very fit 50 year old to me. No, I didn't. Yeah. Didn't mean that. Didn't mean that's no. denigrated. I mean, just, he, yeah, he looks like a 40 ish guy. I would say, I, don't I think know. he looks older than he is. I mean, and the thing is like, no, I don't know. I mean, like I think a good dye job and a spray, a spray tan would probably do more to make him look 15 years younger than all of the vitamins that he takes. Well, but it's not just on that external, you know, like epigenetic age. He's talking about biomarkers no. and stuff. It's not just looking right. good. Right. Yeah. No, no, no. But that's what that's what's sort of the funny thing to me about this is that he's done all of this stuff. And I don't think that he looks particularly young. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this guy all over social media. He posts a ton. He does a ton of interviews. What's your read on him? I mean, I, I don't have a read because the photos are so bizarre and so overshadow anything else about him. I just knew him as a vaguely scandalous and controversial figure. Um, I basically knew him as the naked guy in the forest, which he is. But I, I take it there's more going on here. Yeah, I mean, I I find him at once both cringe and also kind of likable. Like, he's a dork who recently discovered that lifting weights is going to make you look and feel better, and he's got the zeal of the convert. He's also a frequent target of ridicule, but he doesn't seem to care, and I like that about him. Like, he makes a spectacle of himself. He leans into self-parody. He sort of embraces this image that people have of him. Like, if someone accuses him of being a vampire drinking his son's blood to live to get forever, he's more likely just to chuckle about it and agree than get mad. So, I don't know. Which is way better. If you're going to yeah. be, like, an online, like, colorful presence... You can't then get mad if people make fun of you. That's just the worst look ever. Yeah, and it just makes people make fun of you more. So he's like the opposite of the paleo bro, you know, the guy hunting elk with a bow and arrow and suntanning his taint to increase his sperm count. <laughs> Brian is all tech, right? Like he uses supplements and devices and he measures everything and he puts a red light hat on his head to keep his hair. He does that every day. He's AI come to life. He's weird and he knows it. So I've always found him sort of amusing and harmless, if a little strange. But recently he got himself into some trouble and that's what we're actually here to discuss. So Jesse, one of the things that you will frequently read about Brian online is that he left his fiance when she was sick with breast cancer. Have you heard this? Oh, yeah. I think I saw Trace tweeting about this, actually. Maybe yeah. that I didn't realize it was the same guy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So the fiance, uh, now ex-fiance, her name is Taryn Southern, and she's a, a tech communicator slash storyteller, which basically means like a branding person. She's also a former American Idol contestant. She's an actress, a documentary filmmaker. She's a YouTuber. She was early to YouTube, and she would do these parodies of music videos, and she's been successful in various different digital formats, particularly in VR and AI. Uh, she seems smart and interesting, good at what she does. And in 2016, Brian Johnson saw her videos, reached out to her, and they began dating. Uh, so they were together until she got cancer and he dumped her at the end of 2019, start of 2020, depending on how you count. Oh, yeah. 
And then in 2021, she sued him, alleging that while she was sick, he threatened to fire her from her job and that he forced her to move out of the house they shared together. And this became a big part of his story, right? Brian broke up with his girlfriend when he, when she got cancer and kicked her out of the house. And it made him look like a huge prick, you know, the Newt Gingrich variety. Although I will say, in the course of looking into this, I went down a Newt Gingrich rabbit hole and it turns out that he did not actually divorce his first wife while she was dying on, of cancer. She actually lived to be 71 years old. And uh, and she was his high school teacher. Did you know that? Yeah. Newt Gingrich lore is pretty amazing. Yeah. Right? God. What a guy. Anyway, Brian took a lot of shit for breaking up with his girlfriend while she was sick and then kicking her out of the house, as you can, you can imagine. So here's an example from Anna Slats. She's the editor of the feminist site Redux. Do you think it's fair to say that she's a little bit of a man-hater. Is that fair? I think you're allowed to say it, but I'm not. All right. Please read this tweet, Jesse. Every time I see this jaundiced skinwalker, it's a good turn of She's phrase, very clever. On my timeline, all I can remember is how he kicked his fiance out of their house while she was in chemotherapy for stage three breast cancer. Okay. I remember now that I saw this tweet yeah. as well. So Southern... Oh, wait. Also, this is... um, It's quote retweeting Brian Johnson, another naked photo... Mm-hmm. Death was my only wish for 10 years. Depression had me in an unbreakable chokehold. Giving thanks today that I now feel an insatiable thirst for life. Sending you all open book hearts. Okay, so she's like, fuck you. You left your you left yeah. your girlfriend when she yeah. was sick. So Southern's lawsuit against Brian recently resolved. And afterwards, he went on the offensive and he posted a long YouTube video basically claiming victory. And he also posted a long statement on Twitter. Uh, let's play the first part of the video here. He posted this on YouTube. It has, at, at this point, over 1.2 million views. My former fiance threatened to make scandalous public accusations about me unless I paid her $9 million in one week. Two years later, a judge ordered her to pay me a half a million dollars for the fees I had spent defending my innocence. The dark underground accusation economy. Okay, so how did this happen? It started on April 6th, 2021, that morning I was telling you about with a 13-page letter from her attorneys. A quote, redacted is willing to settle all of her claims against Mr. Johnson and his companies for $9 million, dot, dot, dot. This was surprising because after over a year of our relationship ending, for the first time ever, she was accusing me of a wide range of, quote, abusive and pervasive behaviors. Through her attorneys, she threatened to make her allegations public if I didn't pay her that $9 million in one week. Receiving this, WTF. What claims? What wrongdoing? Is this April Fool's? Am I being punked? I am so confused. This is a person whom I'd once had the most beautiful relationship with, and now she was unrecognizable to me. I double-clicked on the email and I started reading the letter and the contents were shocking. I felt paralyzed. What was even more shocking was that my fiance and I had signed a separation agreement a year earlier when ending our relationship. We both agreed to walk our separate ways. It was clear that she and her attorneys were gambling that they would put enough pressure on me of my reputation being tarnished publicly that I would pay up 
and settle privately. She was emboldened by lawyers blinded by their greed to take advantage of her vulnerabilities and exploit my wealth. After over six months of threatening to destroy me with more serious allegations in her, quote, podcast, a book deal, and a potential TV series, the attorneys who sent the demand letter never filed a complaint or produced a single piece of evidence to support the allegations. Then she got new attorneys. Seeing that threats alone were insufficient, they filed the case in court and tried to make me look like a monster. I successfully moved part of the case into arbitration where we had agreed to resolve any disputes. As their legal losses mounted, they became increasingly unhinged in what they were willing to say. Sadly, global media ate it up. On March 31st, 2023, after extensive motions, depositions, and discovery, the arbitrator dismissed all her causes of action that had been referred to arbitration and ordered that my accuser pay me a half a million dollars to reimburse attorney's fees I'd, I'd been forced to spend defending my innocence. The ruling and award were confirmed by an active Superior Court judge on September 29th, 2023. After years of litigation, the corroborating evidence my accuser had of any of my accused wrongdoings, nothing, not a single thing. In considering my accuser's attempt to invalidate the separation agreement she had signed, the arbitrator, a well-respected retired judge, pointed out that my accuser's, quote, undisputed conduct and testimony refute her claims. In other words, my accuser's own evidence contradicted her own story. So yeah, this, it seems like he's touting a lot of receipts. Like he has a pretty good, I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to be on this guy's side because the accusations are major douchery, but he's claiming to have a lot of evidence suggesting the uh, allegations were trumped up, right? Yeah. I mean, it sounds from his retelling, it sounds like a slam dunk. Like she tried to extort him for $9 million and failed so badly that she had to pay his attorney fees. And you know, this came out not that long after, after the story of Trevor Bauer that was the professional baseball player who was accused of assault and lost his contract with the Dodgers. And then during a lawsuit, he sued his accuser he, for defamation, I believe. He was, I mean, I guess the term isn't exonerated because the case was in civil court, not criminal court, but he won. We did a segment about it back in the fall. So Brian's story reminded me of Trevor's and I thought, yeah, he got a bad rap. And a lot of people seem to be like me, judging from the comments on social media, like just assuming that Brian's retelling of events was accurate. So he was on social media crowing about his victory and calling out his critics. He specifically called out Anna Slats for her tweet and said she should apologize to him. I mean, she, of course, did no such thing. I don't think Anna Slats would apologize if she accidentally ran over someone's dog. Uh, she responded, you're such an ego case that you've been fermenting in rage for weeks that a complete stranger would have the audacity to not like you. Ironically, that's the exact trait that made it extremely easy to believe you'd done what your fiance said you did. Damn. So she's not backing down. <laughs> no. uh, Brian also complained about the media coverage of the lawsuit. 
implying that the press had run with a fake story, which of course wouldn't surprise me at all if that was true. Like we talked about this on the Trevor Bauer episode and in other times in the context of Me Too, you know, allegations are assumed to be true, not just by like man-hating feminazis or whatever, but by reporters who don't bother to investigate them. And this has destroyed many a man's career. I mean, Al Franken is probably the most notable example. He was accused of harassment in the midst of Me Too. He was publicly shamed. He resigned from the Senate. And then a couple years later, Jane Mayer from The New Yorker actually went back and investigated the claims against him and concluded that they were like wildly exaggerated and or fabricated. Of course, that didn't get him his Senate seat back. Anyway, so I was primed to believe Brian. I myself have investigated Me Too stories that turned out to be partially or entirely fabricated. And I've always found the slogan hashtag believe women to be incredibly patronizing because women are human and humans lie. Nobody knows that better than lesbians. Women are not human. They are perfect angels. Right. And to me, it just seems that reporters especially have an obligation to be skeptical, even when it's uncomfortable or taboo. Uh, Well, Jesse, I should have been a little more skeptical of Brian Johnson because our own Tracing Woodgrains read the thousand plus pages of legal documents associated with this case. And it turns out that Brian's own retelling of this case is not exactly accurate. Uh, so first, let's get into the backstory of their relationship. So I mentioned a moment ago, Taryn Southern and Brian Johnson, um, he DM'd her. That's how they met. They got together for dinner in L.A. And that started this intense whirlwind romance. He was divorced and had three kids. And just three months into dating, they moved into a $10,000 a month rental house in Venice Beach together. It's very lesbian of them to do all that quickly. Wait, you said she was working for him at the time, or that was after they met? So, right. She was his employee, but that was after they met. She was kind of his employee. So as soon as they started dating, she started doing some consulting for him, basically branding and communication stuff. That's her expertise. And he paid her a starting salary of around $20,000 a year plus healthcare. He said that this was basically for healthcare. And she got paid more from his various business entities, including a $15,000 a month gig for Colonel. That's his mind-reading helmet company. And that's good money, but she took a big loss working for him. So according to her tax returns, before Brian, she was making nearly $400,000 a year. And then when she started working for him, she was making between one hundred dollars and $140,000. But it's love, right? What's mine is yours. He's a millionaire. Uh, all that shit, right? Yeah. And her employment contract, and this is important, stipulated that any employment dispute had to be resolved in arbitration. And so this is a way for businesses to avoid being sued, right? The contract also included this clause that the, quote, non-prevailing party reimburses the prevailing party for the prevailing party's attorney's fees. This is also going to become important later on, but that just means if you lose an arbitration, the loser has to pay the winner's fees. Got it? Yeah. So Taryn should not have signed this contract, but she was in love And love has a tendency to shut down people's brains because, you know, you can't imagine things going south. But of course, things did go south. And in her lawsuit, she says that Johnson became controlling specifically over financial stuff pretty quickly. He made her delete her YouTube videos. She made income for her YouTube videos. He said that this was like he was worried that was going to harm his reputation. He made her sell her rental house. Uh, That was an income stream for her. So pretty soon she was totally dependent on him financially. And, and shit started to get weird. So I'm going to read you a bit from an article in Vanity Fair about this. He demanded a list of her past boyfriends and made her describe the sexual acts that took place, citing his own reputational risk, according to the complaint. 
He also told her he wanted to have sex with other women and attributed his need for sexual variety, as one friend put it, to his conservative religious upbringing. He soon became obsessed with his sexual conquest and replaying the details of his triumphs to Miss Southern under the guise of radical transparency and honesty, according to the lawsuit. A declaration Southern provided to her lawyers described an incident that took place while she was staying with Johnson at the Bowery Hotel in New York in February 2017, in which he allegedly called a prostitute to their shared room and had sex with her while Southern pretended to be asleep. When Johnson was asked about the incident in his deposition, his lawyer advised him not to answer. (laughs) My God. Was this like a super open relationship that includes you're allowed to have a prostitute in the same room where, where I am? Unclear. I mean, it sounds like from their depositions, it sounds like he fucked around. She didn't. She wanted to be monogamous. It doesn't sound like he lied about it and maybe was even a little too transparent. But from her deposition, it sounds like one of those classic he's poly, she's not situations. Those usually work out. Yeah. She did say in her deposition that he did promise to be monogamous and then wasn't. And yet, for some reason, they got engaged anyway. And then in spring of 2019, Southern was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And then six months later, as she was preparing for surgery, he broke up with her. What was, did it come as a shock to her? Was it like unexpected? Yeah, according to her, it did. Uh, so during the lawsuit, she provided a copy of her therapist notes at the time, and that included a note reading, quote, client reports fiance broke up with her unexpectedly. Her friend said the same thing, that this was unexpected. Uh, maybe it wasn't to him, but it does seem like it was to her. But I mean, he's not a monster. He did kick her out of the house while she was being treated for cancer, but he also offered to pay her rent for a year. Oh. Yeah, nice of him. Uh, But after she found a place, he told her that in order for her to get the money, she had to sign an NDA with a half million dollar fine for each and every violation. Oh, my God. What a fucking douche. He's nickel and diming this woman with cancer when he has hundreds of millions of dollars. He also asked her to post a lie on social media that the breakup was mutual and loving. And through his lawyer, he told her that they should only speak through the lawyers. So in mid-November of 2019, her lawyer returned with a counteroffer of a million dollars given the the NDA provisions. And that number was based on the gap between her wages before she met him and her wages while she was working for him. And in response to that counteroffer, Brian informed her that he was going to fire her and strip her of her stock options and then come after her for background on their home. And he rescinded his permission for her lawyer. Uh, her It's a little complicated, but basically her lawyer's firm worked on projects for his company. So her lawyers fired her. And then he rescinded the offer to help with her moving costs. So he's like, this is pretty scorched earth. Right. So from late December 2019 to early February 2020, he indicated some interest in rekindling their relationship. Oh, my God. A couple days. She should have fucking run yeah. screaming. I know. I know. Uh, they went on a couple dates, agreed to go to couples therapy, and then he attended the ceremony marking the end of her cancer treatment. You know, the one where they ring the bell. You see the videos on TikTok and always make you cry. Yeah. I, and I, how many prostitutes did he bring to that one? <laughs> Just the one. But this reconciliation didn't last long. And then in early February 2020, he formally fired her from her job and convinced her to uh, sign this separation agreement that released all claims against him for $1,000 cash and the retention and, and early vesting of her stock options. But unbeknownst to her, because she didn't vest the stock options in six months, they were worthless. So she got 1000 bucks. Jesus. Okay, wait. So everything you're saying 
comes from Vanity Fair story that you believe. No, no, it comes from the deposition. Okay, so you so it's in the Vanity Fair article, but this is from her deposition and his deposition. Okay, gotcha. And and so what are the discrepancies between the respective stories? Okay, so let's go back to Brian's statement that he posted on YouTube and Twitter. He says, "Quote." Through her attorneys, she threatened to make her allegations public if I didn't pay her $9 million within one week. WTF? What claims? What wrongdoing? It must be April Fool's. Am I getting punked? So this insinuates that this was a total surprise to him and that he had no idea that she had any grievances against him when he got this letter from her lawyer demanding $9 million. And that's just not true. So before she filed this suit, she sent him a letter where she outlines her grievances. So this didn't come out of nowhere. He was well aware of her complaints. Okay, so that's just like straightforward, like his timeline not matching up with reality. Right. He also said in his statement, quote, when she was sadly diagnosed with a serious health condition, I rearranged my life and worked nonstop beside her to beat it. We flew around the country together to meet with doctors and explore clinical trials. Together, we conducted extensive research into additional therapies and tests. It was our shared omnipresent focus. When tests showed she was in the clear and it was time to celebrate her new lease on life, who was the one person in the world she invited to be by her side at the sacred event? Me. She honored my unwavering devotion to her well-being. And so that's a reference to that bell ringing ceremony. So Southern, she... And I will say it is it is weird in light of what you've told me. Look, this could just... Uh, just because if she had a lap or uh, what was retrospectively a lapse in judgment, that doesn't mean we should always take his side. But like, it is weird. She got back together with him after all this shit. I'll just say that. I actually don't find that that weird. Just like having like been a person who. Yeah, people do that. You're right. You're when right. you're in love with yeah. someone like you, you can you make fucking bad decisions. Overlook a lot. Of yeah, stuff. you overlook yeah. a lot of glaring red flags. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of women go back to their abusers. And I'm not saying I'm not accusing him of being an abuser, but this is a thing. Uh, anyway. She can't talk. She's still hamstrung by an NDA. But according to her deposition and friends of hers who Trace spoke to, he did provide monetary support for treatment, but he was not actually there for her treatment. It was her friends who were the ones taking her to and from her chemo appointments, helping her with her meals, and generally being there for her emotional needs during this traumatic time. He just wasn't there for that. I was just going to say that doesn't necessarily conflict with with what he's saying, because he's saying... We flew around the country together to meet with doctors and explore criminal, criminal, clinical trials, conducted extensive research. I mean, it could be that's true. And the chemo thing's true that it wasn't him there for that. I'm just I'm, I'm being nitpicky, but they don't necessarily conflict. Yeah, you can be right about that. And as for the bell ringing ceremony, so he broke up with her and asked her to move out five months into treatment. And then four months later... And less than a month before he got her to sign the separation agreement and dumped her again, he convinced her to have him at this bell ringing ceremony while he was hinting at the idea that they might get back together. Yeah, It sounds manipulative to me. I don't know. It sounds like she was in love with him or needed him. I don't know, one or the other, maybe both. And that he was like sort of dangling the possibility of reconciliation. But regardless, according to her her deposition and friends of hers who Trace talked to, who obviously are not unbiased, uh, he basically forced her into inviting him to this ceremony. Ay, ay, ay. It's very dark. So that's just a couple of the details that don't add up. But there's a lot more. And more importantly, the way he describes the resolution makes it seem like he was exonerated. But that's just not what happened. Okay, so how did the, the courts, the arbitrators, the magist- magistrates, whatever, how did they rule on all this? 
nonsense. Okay, so basically the court ruled that this was an employment dispute because she was his employee. And do you remember when I said a minute ago that when they first got together, she signed this very ill-advised employment contract stipulating that any dispute had to be resolved in arbitration and that the loser would be on the hook for the winner's legal fees? Mm, yeah, I can see where this, where this is going. Yeah, so because she signed that contract, the court ruled that, yes, this should be settled in arbitration. Then in arbitration, the arbitrator concluded that even granting everything that she said was true, the contract was legally valid. So she then appealed this to the court, but arbitration decisions are apparently very hard to overturn if there's no you know, error of the law and nothing came of the appeal, except there was a sanction for her lawyers when they alleged that the, that the arbitrator was corrupt. So basically, he won, but he's misrepresenting why he won. Also, arbit- so my, my stereotype about arbitration um, agreements is they are. You know, I mean, the process is, makes it very difficult for employers or consumers to get justice. There's like different standards that are often weighted in flavor, in flavor and favor of the employer or the, the company in that case. I feel like that's all true, right? Which also makes it so incredible that uh, that Jad, our friend from, from WHYY, the comic, uh, won in arbitration. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to Johnson's statement for a second. So he said, quote, After years of litigation, the corroborating evidence my accuser had of my accused wrongdoings, nothing. Not a single thing. In considering my accuser's attempt to invalidate the separation agreement she had signed, the arbitrator, a well-respected retired drugs judge, not jugs, pointed out that my accuser's undisputed conduct and testimony refute her claims. In other words, my accuser's own evidence contradicted her own story. So he's basically saying that the arbitrator said that she lied. Is that what you get from this, from that paragraph? Yeah, that's what he, that's what he's saying, yeah. Right. And that's just not true. So the case hinged on specific technicalities of contract law. All the arbitrator was saying with that line was granting the claims that he was pressuring her are true. It was still not enough to invalidate the contract. So the arbitrator never said or indicated that her claims were false. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, so he's presenting this in a pretty misleading way. Yeah, and because the employment contracts that she signed stipulated that the loser would pay the winner's fees, the arbitrator ruled that she would have to pay the about $600,000 of what he spent on his defense. The arbitrator had no discretion on this. This was from the agreement she signed beforehand, which yes. she shouldn't have, but that's a separate issue. Yes. Oh, and he's yes. making it out to lay people like that's how bad, that's how, how bad it was. poor case her was. Yeah. yeah. So she appealed this decision to a court based on unconscionability, and the court concluded that it lacked the authority to review that argument. Is unconscionability just like the, is that just what it sounds like? What does that mean? Yeah. I, <laughs> this is unconscionable. You can't do okay. this to me. That's unconscionable. <laughs> yes. Okay, so here's another claim that he made, Johnson made. He said, quote, The entire thing was bizarre and surreal. My accuser's attorneys were sanctioned by the judge, a severe reprimand that courts reserve for truly egregious conduct, for making, as the judge wrote, quote, serious allegations, dot, 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 factually and legally baseless and frivolous. Her lawyers were ordered to pay the court a fine of $2,500. In our settlement discussions, I also insisted her attorneys pay some of what my accuser owed me for their complicitness. So... He's saying this as though it applies broadly to her claims, right? Like her claims are factually and legally baseless and frivolous. The judge said that she lied. Is that how you interpret that? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about the dot, dot, dot. But yes, that is how a normal person would interpret that. As the, Your average reader would right. interpret it that way. But when you actually read the ruling, you can see that the judge was very clear 
that those statements only apply to the allegations that her lawyers made that the arbitrator was corrupt. It had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with Johnson. Oh, I guess if you read it, the entire bizarre, the entire thing was bizarre and surreal. My accuser's attorneys were sanctioned by the judge. Oh, yeah. I guess what he's saying is technically true, but people would assume that re- referenced her claims yeah, about him. Him, exactly. These were the lawyer's claims about the arbitrator. And he does this repeatedly. He takes these specific, narrow statements and presents them in a way that lets people assume that they're about him and that they cover much more than they actually do. Is this guy friends with Jonathan M. Katz? <laughs> He's a subscriber. And the thing is, he may be misrepresenting the, not even the facts of the case, but the uh, but the context, but he did win. I mean, he's not lying about that, but he, he won not because he was a victim of a conspiracy or because the court found that Taryn Southern lied about him or tried to extort him. He won because she signed a bad contract. And if you compare this to the Trevor Bauer case, Bauer had text messages from his his accuser to her friend saying, in short, dude is worth 51 mil. I'm going to get that bag or something like that. This yeah. case is not that. It's um, It doesn't seem close to that at all. But wh- what about the $9 million he says she basically tried to extort out of him? Okay, right. So here's how he started out his statement. Quote, my former fiance threatened to make fabricated and scandalous public accusations about me unless I paid her $9 million in one week. Two years later, a judge ordered her to pay me $584,199.16 for fees I spent defending my innocence. So initially what she wanted, according to her own, this letter that she sent him, was $150,000 that he promised her after they broke up to help with rent and expenses. And then when he demanded she sign an NDA, she came back and said she wanted a million dollars to compensate for the large pay cut she took while working for him. Remember, she went from earning about $400,000 a year to between one and 140 working for him. And then again, I mentioned this a moment ago, but he got her lawyers to cut ties with her. So she got new lawyers who worked on, worked for her on contingency. And will you explain what contingency, Jesse, is? You know, right? Is isn't that just where you work for someone and if you lose, they don't owe you anything. If you win, you get a cut. Exactly. So these are the lawyers who sent this. Th- I do this podcast on contingency yes. and I haven't been paid no, yet. No, you haven't. I'll send you a free hoodie. Uh, so her new lawyers, they sent him this. No, it sounds like you can't. It sounds like that's not going to work out. <laughs> her new lawyers sent him this demand letter for $9 million. And the first part of virtually any lawsuit is the sending of a demand letter to see about settling out of court. And this demand letter, I read it, it outlines all the complaints, including that he exploited her labor, that he controlled her finances, that he pressured her into signing these bad contracts, all the stuff we've talked about. So Brian's not lying about that. No, wait, 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 hold on. He is My former fiance threatened to make fabricated and scandalous public accusations. That part. Yeah, the fabricated part. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's pretty, I mean, unless he has evidence the accusations were fabricated. (laughs) And if he's. The demand letter said, bitch is going to lie about you on Twitter. It did not. We hereby publicly declare we are going to defame you right right uh but yeah and he's making this sound like extortion and not the normal part of a lawsuit and taryn herself she appears to not have been super comfortable with that number so in her deposition she says that the law firm she hired after her lawyers fired her uh because he, he pressured them to they were working on contingency so they only get paid if she gets paid 
And she's like, look, this is what the lawyers wanted to do. And since they're representing me on contingency, I didn't feel like I could fight them on the specifics. And the thing to understand here is that demand letters are usually the start of the negotiation process and they tend to be optimistic. And it's entirely unsurprising that he rejected the settlement offer. But in his retelling of it, yes, it looks like she it looks like she was threatening to lie about him and extort him for nine million dollars. I mean, anyone can put whatever they want in a demand letter. And it makes sense for yeah. a very rich guy. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if these were bad lawyers or not, but I could see them being like, oh, this is enough. If they felt they had a strong case, $9 million, maybe he'll, you know, come back with five. That's just, it's normal. He's, I, yeah, he's, it seems like he's badly misrepresenting this. Yeah. I mean, in the demand the, the letter, they outlined how they calculated this number. I mean, it might have been bad legal advice. Who knows? She did not get the money. Um, and I, I got to say, Brian, he, I mean, he comes across as a giant asshole when you read these court documents. Like at one point, he says the period of before their breakup was really traumatic because she had cancer and he cut his hand on a wine glass. Wow, which is worse I medically? Mean, <laughs> no one knows. It it did sound like a serious, a very serious cut. But come on, she had stage three fucking cancer. She might have had stage three <laughs> cancer, but he had a stage four wine glass cut. And all that being said, I'm not sure I disagree with the outcome of the case. I mean. Brian didn't do anything illegal because it's not illegal to abandon your partner when they get cancer. It's not illegal to ask your partner to take down her YouTube videos because you think they're embarrassing. It's not even illegal to ask your partner to sign an NDA or a shitty employment contract. And what I kept thinking when I read Taryn's deposition was this woman didn't protect herself. This man is one giant walking red flag. And the minute he gave her that employment contract, she should have run screaming in the other direction. She should have run screaming to Tinder or Hinge. But she was blinded by love, which absolutely sucks. But we've all been there. And the only thing that makes this case different from every other case is that the boyfriend, the shitty boyfriend has money. So I just, I don't know, like he's definitely overstating the extent to which this was any kind of exoneration for him. It wasn't. It was decided on the particulars of contract law, but contracts don't become void just because your boyfriend turns out to be a douche. Yeah. The question of whether he's a douche from the question of whether this is like technically a fair outcome are different. Um, I, I think like uh, the lesson here is... If you entangle your personal life with your yes. professional life, especially when contracts are involved, you're probably not going to have a good time. So you will not be joining the polycule. I will not. I'm sorry. Tell Moose I apologize. Damn. Uh, now, as I mentioned, Trace read all a thousand plus document pages of the documents associated with his Wait, case. Wait, you didn't mention that? A thousand yes, pages? Yes, I did. Yes, I did mention that. And he well, did. I, well, I wasn't paying attention. That's not my fault. Yes. A thousand plus pages he read about this guy? Yes. Extra belly rubs if we see him in Philly. He tweeted a long thread about his findings. And he also said that he was, we'll, we'll post a link to that. He also said he was started out inclined to believe Brian and was really surprised at what he found because it was contrary to his bias, which was, which was towards Brian. Um, Brian did respond to that thread. He said that Trace was blinded by his bias. Although, well, hey, it makes sense that he would side with 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 Brian because they both like to run around naked in the forest. True, and they both have blood boys. <laughs> Brian did respond to Trace. He basically was like, "You're wrong. You've been blinded by your own bias on this." Uh, and then when Trace asked Brian to point out anything, any actual errors, uh, Brian didn't answer. Of course, he may have been busy drinking baby blood or shocking his penis. <laughs> well, um. I got to say, I really wish Brian Johnson the best. He seems like a very good guy. And I hope that lady does okay, too. He's going to be around for a long time. Did she, um, as of now, she's clear of the cancer? Yes, she is. Uh, as far as I know, she's clear of the cancer. Um, stage three is like pretty yeah. dicey. Um, all right. Well, 
She's still alive. That's good. <laughs> She's alive. She could have been could have been much worse. I mean, yes, it could have been worse. She could still be with Brian Johnson. <laughs> she could have died, or she could still be with or worse, still with jo- Brian Johnson. Um, thank you for that, Katie, and thank you very much to Trace. Yes, thank you, Trace. All right, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, this has been blocked and reported. We are produced as always with help from Tracy Woodgrains and Jessica, the '80s baby. I'm Jesse Single, and remember. I can definitely visualize things in my mind, but I can't visualize myself wearing a neon green mesh tank top. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you want to destroy the nuclear family, do not bother with polyamory. It is much faster just to tell your children you're a big Matt Walsh fan over dinner. <laughs>